Welcome to the 280th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Rebecca Edelman, creator of the Coronavirus Lost and Found Archive. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 19th, 2021, there are 3,408,811 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In India, they're reporting 287,156 deaths from COVID-19. And the news that I saw today was that they have set a single-day coronavirus death record, 4,529 lives lost from the disease yesterday. The way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. I've been continuing to read obituaries from the New York Times, Those We've Lost series, particularly after my interview two weeks ago with Dan Waken. I hope you'll check out that COVID calls episode. The headline here is Paulo Gustavo, comedian who lampooned Brazilian mothers, dies at 42. This was written by Ernesto Londonio and published in the New York Times May 7th, 2021. He was best known for portraying the character Dona Herminia, a cantankerous but loving middle-aged mother whose sharp tongue and misadventures left Brazilians doubled over in laughter. The role which he played on stage and later in films made the actor and writer Paulo Gustavo Amaral Montero de Barros, known professionally as Paulo Gustavo, one of the most acclaimed Brazilian artists of his generation. Fans came to love him for the tact with which he lampooned the traits of dysfunctional families. Mr. DeBarros died of complications of COVID-19 at a Rio de Janeiro hospital, where he had been treated for the disease since March 13th, according to a statement by the medical team that oversaw his care. He was 42. In a nation beleaguered by a pandemic that has killed more than 414,000 people there, Mr. DeBarros's death sparked a rare, widespread outpouring of grief. In Niteroi, his hometown in Rio de Janeiro State, tearful residents gathered along the bay on Wednesday night of the week that he died to give him one last standing ovation. There were similar gestures of admiration in several other parts of the country. Renan Canalha, a law professor and human rights activist, credited Mr. DeBarros, a champion of LGBTQ rights, with easing intolerant views in a nation that has long been deeply sexist and homophobic. Through screens, he entered the homes of homophobic people who were touched and challenged by his characters, Mr. Kanalha wrote in a tribute 
in the paper of Folha. He used his life and his art as tools to broaden moral horizons and to challenge deeply entrenched biases. Condolence statements came in a torrent, including one from President Jair Bolsonaro, who has played down the threat of COVID-19 and disparaged gay people. His talent and charisma earned the affection of all Brazilians, Mr. Bolsonaro wrote. Mr. DeBarros is survived by his husband, Thales Bretas, a dermatologist whom he married in 2015, his parents, Dea Lucia Vieira Amaral, a retired school teacher, and Julio Marcio Montero de Barros, and two children, Gail and Romeo, both one-year-old, born to surrogate mothers in the United States. Mr. de Barros was born in Niteroi on October the 30th, 1978. After studying acting at Casa des Artes de Laranjeras in Rio de Janeiro, he made his debut as Dona Herminia in a play he wrote, My Mother is a Character. It was a hit drawing more than 100,000 theatergoers in 2006 and 2007. In the play and in the film adaptation, which he produced and wrote, Dona Herminia, an overbearing mother whose husband abandons her for a younger woman, leaves home abruptly, leaving her children perplexed. She seeks refuge at the home of a beloved aunt with whom she shares her sorrows and frustrations. The movie was also a hit and followed by two sequels. Late last year, during one of his final television appearances, Mr. DeBarros urged Brazilians to take care of themselves during the pandemic and to find solace in the arts. Laughter is an act of resistance, he said. We're needing these annoying masks now to protect our face from this virus, and unfortunately these masks hide something very precious for us Brazilians, our smile. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. Excited to introduce my guests. Let me introduce her to you. Rebecca A. Edelman is professor and chair of media and communication studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She's the author of Beyond the Checkpoint, Visual Practices in America's Global War on Terror, which appeared in 2014, and Figuring Violence, Effective Investments in Perpetual War, which appeared in 2019, as well as co-editor of Remote Warfare, New Cultures of Violence, which appeared last year. In April 2020, she launched Coronavirus Lost and Found, a public archive where anyone can log anything they've lost or found as a result of the pandemic. Rebecca Edelman, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls this morning. Thank you so much for the invitation, Scott. I said this morning, which may sound weird to East Coast audiences, <laughs> so it's the first time I've slept, but in, in Korea, I'm, I'm a little <laughs> bit, a few hours ahead. Well, um, I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is going there, maybe how the vaccination is going there. Sure, thanks. Um, and thanks again for the invitation. So I am speaking to you now from my home, which has also, of course, been my workspace uh, for the last 15 months. Um, and I'm in, I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. So here on the East Coast, it's uh, about quarter to six in the evening. Um, so it's been an interesting couple of days uh, here in Maryland, uh, pandemic-wise. Um, uh, very suddenly last week, following on the heels of the CDC's uh, guidance about um, masks and vaccines, uh, the governor of Maryland just kind of suddenly lifted um, mask the mask requirement and also pretty much all uh, restrictions on indoor and outdoor gatherings. Um, however, as has always been the case, um, 
local like localities and individual businesses can make their own decisions about what kinds of things are required. Um, so it's very much like starting to feel like a, a patchwork of a patchwork of regulations and, and a patchwork of different experiences um, here in Baltimore City. Uh, the by most metrics, I was just doing a little reading about them this morning. Uh, by most metrics, Baltimore City is doing worse than the rest of Maryland. We're still in a much earlier phase of reopening. Um, so many of the same restrictions are in place. Um, and indeed, like as I said, many of the indicators in Baltimore are um, worse than elsewhere in Maryland. Um, the vaccination rate is uh, the full, I think it's just about a third of the population in Baltimore is fully vaccinated. And there's huge disparities um, by race in terms of uh, like who is fully vaccinated. Um, and so it, it just very much feels like the like the state has sort of decided the pandemic is over now uh, and kind of left everyone to, to figure it out for themselves. It, um, it may be too early in the podcast to talk about neoliberalism. I don't know if you like to save that until later, but there's always uh, this, time. There's always time, uh, but it really does kind of feel like that, like sort of retraction, um, that retraction of the state. Now it's just kind of left to everyone to figure it out for themselves. You know, the evidence for that it, interesting point you made there about you know, the state basically saying, OK, you know, anything goes. And so then that leaves it to individual businesses or schools, hospitals, public and private facilities and individual people to try to make their own decision, which to me is a time capsule um, of the very early days in, in the pandemic, before some states had made you know strong decisions about what kind of facilities would be open and closed. And I had kind of forgotten that moment a bit until this last couple of weeks and the sort of uncertainty of that, of that guidance. How are you proceeding in that regard? <laughs> Uh, very ca ca cautiously. Um, I, you know, actually, when we uh, when I heard the news about um, Maryland, I was actually on my way to the doctor's office to get my second vaccine. Um, and so my first question was to like the medical staff, like, how do you feel about like, how do you feel about this? What are you going to do? And they were like, we're keeping our keeping our masks on like what I mean, and of course, in healthcare settings, it's still required. Um, but they were like, Oh, no, no, like, we're, we're staying covered. And that's, that's been my approach too. Um, mostly just because I, I don't want to ever think that I'm doing something that could endanger someone, someone else. Um, I just feel like there's so many uncertainties still. Um, and it's, it's, I will say it, it is very, uh, it's unusual. It's, it's 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 interesting to see how quickly um, people have started to kind of un unmask, particularly in like enclosed spaces, um, even just like over the weekend or earlier in the week that it just it feels like, as I said, it feels like the, the state has decided pandemic over and uh, many people were keen to keen to agree. Um, so that's not how I'm proceeding. Um, but that seems to be how how many people are. It, it's an interesting discussion that's underway right now, I think, culturally in the United States around around that and people who follow the science to put on the mask. And when the CDC says, OK, now now time to take it off or it's OK to take it off, there is that sort of vestigial. I, I don't think it's an anti-science move for many people. I think it's a vestigial just sort of making sense mm -hmm. of it. To me, it's almost like if you've ever been in a near car accident. And you pull over and you sit on the side of the road and you leave your seatbelt on. I don't yeah. know if you've ever had that experience. Sure, yeah. I have. And it's like, okay, we're safe now, but 
we're going to sit here a second and just sort of like take a breath. That's how I feel that many are approaching the mask issue. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, it's been, I think that makes a lot of sense. That's a really interesting metaphor or comparison. I think um, it's just been a year, I guess, 15 months now, 14, 15 months now of so many transitions that I think people might, you know, I could understand as you're saying that people might just want to kind of slow this one, uh, slow this one down. So it very much feels you know, just in a general sense that there's there's kind of these two competing currents, the people who are like, now we're back to normal and the people who are like, oh, no, no, not so fast. Um, and it's just like, that's just kind of my, if I were to sort of take the temperature of uh, the area at large or even the, the culture writ large, it feels like there's a lot of kind of just tension between those two, those two impulses. I'm glad we started with this because you're a person who's spent the last 15 months thinking a lot about the ways that individuals are processing the pandemic. And you launched in early days of the pandemic an archive, which is called the Coronavirus Lost and Found Archive. And I've sent out the link to that on social media. People can find that. I'll put the link up here in, in just a second. Talk to us about the archive. How did you come up with the idea and what is it? Sure. Well, thank you. Um, so in a word, uh, Coronavirus Lost and Found is an online public archive where anyone can log anything, uh, no matter how large or small, that they've lost or found uh, because of the pandemic. Um, so it's still open, still accepting submissions. I intend to leave it open for as long as it seems necessary to leave it open. I'm always happy to, happy is the wrong word, but always grateful uh, to receive um, another contribution if people are still kind of thinking thinking along these lines. Um, the sort of personal impulse for creating the archive, as you said, it was early days of the pandemic, um, really very early days, like in, within the first kind of couple of weeks of the first uh, shut down. And like, like most people, uh, probably in March of last year, I was spending, I'm sorry, having some headphone problems, uh, spending a lot of my time on making plans. Um, and it was just incredibly laborious to, you know, un, unscheduled travel un to cancel professional, uh, engagements to pull back from volunteer opportunities to like, cancel the, you know, to, to kind of contend with the cancellation of the race I'd been training for, you know, just all of these things, the stuff that like makes a life a life. Um, and it just felt like for a couple of weeks, that's all I was doing was like unmaking plans. And in and of itself, right, that work is, is draining. And it's a lot of time on, you know, dealing with airlines who, you know, or just want to reassure you that the value of your ticket is safe uh, when you're ready to travel again. You know, I mean, it's just, there's nothing, there's no real dividend there. There's no real reward. Um, and the whole process struck me as even sadder because like beyond the things I wasn't going to be able to do, it struck me that all the effort that I had kind of put into making these things happen, all the intention, all the expectation, all the the enthusiasm, and just all the kind of logistical effort, people that know me know that I am like a planner. Um, like that would all like that would all just kind of disappear, right? As if those things had never happened. And as I started to talk to people, I realized that I wasn't alone in that, right? That a lot of people were feeling the same way. And I was thinking, like, what if there could just be a place? where people could record like what could have been, right? Something that they were looking forward to, something that they had lost. Like what if there could just be a place where that 
could happen, right? So it would have some kind of form, even though that form would not be, it's not the same as taking the trip. It's not the same as like going to the wedding or having the graduation or, you know, whatever it is, like whatever it is that people were mourning. But it's like this, this would have happened, right? Like it's, it's kind of in some ways it was meant to be sort of a, a monument to, to what would have happened. Um, so I was kind of kicking around that idea and I was uh, chatting it over with, uh, well, he's my husband now, who's my boyfriend at the time. Uh, and I said, you know, this is what I'm thinking about. And he, who is perpetually the glass half full to my glass half empty, said, well, yes. And also there are like, there are good things happening now. Like people are doing good things now. Um, and so what what would happen if you maybe also kind of tried to capture that? Um, so as I was thinking it through, I, I kind of came up with this idea of like a lost and found framing just as sort of a way to help people make sense. Um, and so it became a place where people could log both their losts and their founds. Um, and so now we're about 15 months in to this project. Um, I have nearly 200 entries um, from people all over the, I thought it would just be like, you know, two friends that I could like coax into contributing, but it's people all over the region, all over the US, all over the world. Um, we have, I have writers from every continent except Australia, like I'm not, not Australia, every continent except Antarctica, like Antarctica would complete the set. Um, but if you've got any listeners, um, but you know, more than that, it just, I, I talk about the scope, um, because I think it really gets at the, the richness and the complexity. Um, and sometimes the contradicted contradiction of like lived experience during the pandemic. That, that moment in time that you're describing the canceling of plans. Mm -hmm. So interesting. And I had forgotten that um, for myself and others that I talked to, the process of taking things off the calendar. Mm -hmm. Now, as a historian, that's bad practice. I should have left those things on the calendar and then made a note, like, didn't do this. Um, but still, I was slow. And in fact, you know, I have thought about this a, a little bit at the time, slow to take things off. At first, because even though I knew better, I thought, well, maybe this will this will be a glancing blow, and and somehow by June I will be able to do um, these trips. But then it was a process for other things, things planned in the fall, particularly things with family. I just left them up there at, for a while, and the taking down of those things from the calendar was really a process for me. And so when I discovered your lost and found archive, and then read a bit about you describing it this way, it really struck a chord with me in that regard. I'm also glad that you described your partner um, asking you to find the found um, there uh, amid the loss. And I think that's an, it's an interesting pairing and, a um, you know, working with something that we all think we know what a lost and found is, but to reinterpret it in this, in this way. I wonder if you could share um, maybe a couple of entries that you find maybe exemplify some of the themes that are just really struck with you, struck you? Sure. I'd be happy to. I'm going to um, read here off the screen. Um, I'll just read, I'll start with one um, lost and one found. And if you'd like to hear more, we can, we can do that. Um, but there's so many, and I should say that this is, I don't, I, I don't have children, but I imagine this is like picking a favorite child or something like that. I will say that all of the entries are so, um, I'm grateful for all of them, just the the kind of creativity and generosity and really the trust, because um, most of the en the entries are from strangers that people were willing to entrust 
me and this thing that I created with their stories. Um, so choosing these two um, was really hard, um, and it and it doesn't do doesn't diminish the value at all of of the others. Um, so the first one I'll read is a lost, uh, and this one comes from Becky in Yorkshire, England. And um, this was actually posted uh, last summer, I believe. Uh, it's called My Independence. And Becky writes, I felt scared long before any of my friends or family. The news said it was mainly old and sick people that were dying. And the people around me said, ah, that's okay then. And I had to point out that I was one of those sick people and that we have parents who are very old. I don't think I've ever felt so vulnerable. And then lockdown finally arrived. My husband and I were shielding. We both have existing medical conditions that make us extremely vulnerable. The first three weeks was a frenzy of organizing groceries. We had to ask friends and family to take risks to get us what we needed. We depended on them for everything outside the home. They were great. They've continued to be great. But it's been hard learning how to ask. And it's harder to ask for chocolate than for bread and milk. Harder to ask for luxuries than necessities, yet suddenly I'll want a treat and I can't stop thinking about it, but I can't go and get it. So I think about it more and then I have to ask and then I have to be grateful. I didn't know how exhausting dependence is. It's funny, though, because I actually need this kind of help most of the time, regardless of pandemics. And I never ask because I don't like being dependent, being a burden. Being disabled is emotionally draining, not just because of the impairment, because, but because everything involves managing feelings. So then I will share um, a found, uh, and this is from a woman named T uh, in Toronto, Canada. And she writes, it was only days before the emergency orders were announced in mid-March in Toronto that I grasped the scale of the pandemic and its profound effect on our lives. Depending on who you ask, this realization was prescient to judge by ongoing outbreaks. Many have yet to arrive at this, and this she was again writing last spring, or belated. After all, the news out of Wuhan had been dire for months by that point. As for me, the realization struck with a sense of deja vu. While still on the train home from my long commute, a route that would eventually be shuttered for months, I called my parents, both of them immunocompromised, and urged them to bunker down and prepare. Remember, I said, what it was like to live through war in Vietnam. This is how we will survive. The funny thing is, I don't actually remember this war, having been born just as it ended. I just knew of it through their recollections, tales of sudden disappearances and death, of the scramble to have enough to eat and live, the quiet joy of surviving another day, the sadness of letting go, recounted as bittersweet bedtime stories. They conveyed lessons about the fleeting quality of life, the need to act urgently and decisively to keep on living. So it's not that I viewed the pandemic as a war, a metaphor tirelessly bandied about as governments in Canada, the U.S. and beyond sought compliance at times fruitlessly with public health initiatives. Instead, I drew on memories of war, or in my case, post-memories of war, and related to all this, the experience of forced dislocation to shelter in the turmoil the fear and the panic of this pandemic. Tibui in her graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do, refers to a refugee reflex, an instinct that pushes one to survive. My friends, who are the children of refugees, are themselves refugees or are born in refugee camps, a way station from one side of violence to another. See, something similar kicked in for them. They joke that they were born for this. Growing up as refugees provides a lifetime of preparation. They knew without being told how to stock up a pandemic pantry with rice, beans, foods, dries and dried and frozen. They knew without knowing how they knew what to do next. 
talking with Rebecca Edelman on COVID calls today, and she's just reading a couple of the entries from the coronavirus lost and found archive, which she created last year in 2020. And you can find that at Pandemic Archive, all one word, pandemicarchive.com. And Rebecca, as you noted, people can still go in and leave their own lost and found there. Um, those two are really moving, I wonder, and I heard notes in there that really um, resonated with other you know, stories that I've heard throughout the pandemic. Why did you select those? What, what did you find in those that really um, sticks with you? Uh, that's a great question. And again, um, you know, so many that I could have chosen from the the first one I read, The Lost, uh, for a, a woman who talks about the sense of losing her independence, I think was really striking to me. Um, the, the thing that really kind of stopped me as I read it um, was her sort of reflection on the desire for these things that aren't necessities, right? Like chocolate, uh, that suddenly start to feel like necessities when they're inaccessible, when they're inaccessible to you. Um, and, and she was, it was thinking about just the relative privilege of like, if I want chocolate or anything, like I'm fortunately I'm, I've, I'm well, um, I'm not, you know, as she talks about being immunocompromised, I'm not. So I can just go and do those things. Like I can sort of, you know, <laughs> obtain uh, the things that I need. Um, and I think that was just such a powerful reminder um, about like the, also but there's such a powerful reminder of um, how dependent we are on one another, how dependent we can be on one another, and also um, a need to kind of rethink what constitutes necessary, right? And that mm -hmm. um, she talks about like, of course, you know, bread and milk, and I can ask for bread and milk, but like, sometimes like everyone wants things that make them feel good. Everyone wants um, to find these little like corners of, of pleasure or relief or delight, particularly in a season when everything is so dark. Um, and then when we think about kind of providing for people or caring for people, um, you know, it kind of urges us to think beyond just the, just what we understand is the necessities um, to think about like the, the sorts of sensory experiences or emotional experiences that really make, a life, a life, or give a life its richness, and to be cut off from that um, mm -hmm. is a is a tremendous loss. And the found that you chose, particularly that last part of it, there, sort of tapping into uh, the idea that, of course, people are experiencing the pandemic in disproportionate ways, but also people bring to the pandemic uh, different skill sets. Some of them pretty hard won. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this one, um, you know, again, resonated with me, um, both of these, both because they were, they're beautifully written, but just because of that sense of like the way that an individual history kind of intersects with an event on a global scale and like intersects in these surprising ways. And on the one hand, sort of um, drawing on that, like, that expression of drawing on that memory or drawing on that family history to like urge your elderly parents to take this seriously and to remind them that they have the skills to survive, which kind of turns that militarized metaphor on its head. I like how the author says like, this is not about declaring war on a pandemic. Like we're coming at this from a very different uh, vantage, but saying like you have these skills and sort of the re um, like the reactivation of those skills in this context was really striking to me. And then also just the sense of like, uh, of, of just kind of reminding, it was a reminder in many ways that, um, you know, for, for people who occupy privileged positions, 
um, the disruption of the pandemic or the uncertainty, or they're like, I, you know, the sense of like, I'm not going to be able to get what I need, right? And even in the US, the sort of jokes about people hoarding toilet paper. Um, right. For most people in the United States, not most people, many people in the United States are, um, you know, not being able to get what you need or you want was sort of a novel experience. <laughs> um, but it's a, a compelling reminder that for the vast majority of the world, like, that either is or was the just the sort of fabric of d- daily life, right? The texture of daily experience. Um, so I really appreciated, um, like appreciated the invocation of that. I would just like to, if you don't mind, I'd like to share one that I thought was was oh please um, really moving. And this is one that was written by Michael in Sydney, Australia. Again, mm-hmm. the geographic dispersal of these is really interesting too. And I'll just read a few lines of it. Um, sure. Michael wrote that after our first child was born, it was easy to spend time with the baby. I was lucky to have a flexible job and spend at least a day or two a week at home, often more. Our second arrived last October. And while my work life was much the same, Adrian was already there soaking up energy and time, but stuck at home. And with work fractured into bits and pieces of the day, I'm suddenly doing those things with Sasha that absorbed me with Adrian, smiling to make him smile, tickling, laying his chubby body on my belly as he stretches his little hands for my face, carrying him about endlessly. All those things were happening before, of course, but in smaller, more fleeting moments. But now in these strangely elastic days, I'm finding the time to drag them out, to let them settle in and belong. And as you said, I mean, the writing is these are short pieces, many of them, not all, but many of them are short pieces. Um, this one really packs a punch. And I think it, it captures um, something that I hope we don't forget about this time that people have rediscovered packages of time that were slightly bigger in some ways and other ways, a lot bigger than they had had before. Um, and time with family and, and time for work too, but it, on a different scale. And so it brings both of those to bear on this and then describe something which is, I think, pretty universal, you know, the small details of being with people in your family or people you care about and how quickly you get used to not having those in your life. Also, just from this short reading, um, this amazing term, these strangely elastic days, you know, uh, just I thought it was really impressive. Yeah, and that's that's another um, that's another beautiful piece. And I, you know, I've I've always been interested uh, in a number of ways, just about like people's experiences of time, and particularly experiences of time during crisis. Um, and I think it really gets at um, what that piece really captures, kind of beautifully, is is the the possibility of that was sort of opened up by just being forced to slow down. And I, I know that I personally, and I feel like other people that I've talked to are really um, either already mourning the loss of that or anticipating mourning the loss of that as like we are continually pushed uh, to return to um, re- return to whatever normal is, right? This kind of pre-pandemic normal. Um, I was talking to someone over the weekend who was like, you know, wasn't that great to begin with <laughs> pre-pandemic normal? Right. Um, and I, I think that, you know, for people... This is, of course, not at all to minimize like the tremendous stress of people who are trying to like parent and, um, you know, school their kids at home and work at home and just kind of keep how the the house running and like the the challenges brought about by that collapse, right, of of all these sort of spaces and institutions into one. Um, but I think you know I'm, there's a sense that for many people, like this did enable them to 
enjoy like to enjoy or experience um whether by choice or not experience um aspects of their life that they otherwise would have missed and and as you say kind of maybe would have missed without even knowing what they were missing right um Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Rebecca Edelman today about the coronavirus lost and found archive, which you can find at pandemicarchive.com. And you wrote a piece in the conversation, um, which people can find at conversation.com. And I just want to read one sentence from it. You said the pandemic is measured on a massive scale in millions of cases, trillions of dollars in a global death toll that ticks upward by the thousands. So this is um, you know, last year. Uh, but as coronavirus lost and found reveals, the losses that truly stagger us are often much smaller. They can't easily be counted and they'll never make the news. This has been a theme people who listen to COVID calls know. I've talked to Jackie Vernemont and Robert Soden on, and many others about the problem of big numbers and the problem of um, asymmetries throughout this pandemic. And in fact, I mean, every day I read, I read big numbers and then I try to have an obituary to put those two together. But even that doesn't somehow seem, I mean, that's an attempt at something that I'm trying to get at. And it seems like something you've been trying to get at with these two. Yeah. You know, I I think I, you know, I'm interested in um, losses. I mean, of course, right. Like, and I I want to acknowledge, right. That it's actually, it's vitally important that we have like the true big numbers. Right. And, and that like repression of that information is, is a problem even. So obviously we can all agree on that. Um, but also just, or denial of that information is a problem. Um, but that, you know, it's very, we can't grieve, and there's lots of people who've written about this, like, we can't grieve, I think you said, you know, 3,408,811, like, we can't grieve that, like, that that number, or even really comprehend it, like, our brains just aren't, um, you know, like, numerate enough to understand what that really means. Um, and one of the things I, I also think a lot about is that um, those those big numbers capture the things that officials are able to capture or like to capture, right? Which is um, deaths, infections, or job losses, right? There's a lot of talk about how much this all costs. Um, And those are the kinds of things that, you know, states, uh, governments can can capture and are inclined to capture. Um, And again, like vitally important. um, But I also want to think about like what mechanisms can we develop for capturing the kinds of things that, that can't be quantified, that will never, like never make the news, but that nevertheless um, are tremendously um, have a tremendous impact on on our daily lives. Like I just wanted to kind of create a place for uh, just a really a small handful of those uh, to live or be be acknowledged, be shared, be publicly grieved. Um, if that was something that people wanted to do. I mean, and just to linger here for a second, it's kind of sure. an insider um, wonky method thing, but that's what we're here to do in in part, you know. There is a place, of course, for statistics and you know big data. We rely on economists. We rely on social scientists um, to 
try to take big data sets and extract information from those that can tell us trends. You bet. But, you know, historians and others who work in historical methodology realize there's also a lot of art here in terms of choosing the specific examples, the specific voices um, that stand in for themes that stand in for trends, which may not be leaving hard um, data or may not be leaving statistical evidence, but are nevertheless really strong and powerful currents in society. And, you know, this discussion of large numbers of deaths, um, I think people don't mean it this way, but sometimes they will say, you know, well, this country has really suffered because of this number of deaths, implying that other countries haven't because there may be fewer deaths. But of course, we all know that throughout history, a single death depending on who that person is, sometimes moves, you know, historic history causes historical change more than large numbers might. So the counting is often very misleading. And I, and, and I say that to come back to the archive, because I was curious um, about what kinds of themes you might saw, might have seen running through here. We picked out a few details, even in the three that we talked about that might stand in for larger experiences that could be lost. Um, and, and I'm always thinking about how future historians are going to use resources like the pandemic archive that you've put together. I, I wonder, you know, I guess Mike's more sort of just talking than asking a, a question, but what you think about that, but particularly maybe what sorts of themes you've spotted in there um, that it's important to surface those and they might sort of get lost in this sort of aggregate data rush. Hmm. That's a really interesting, that's a really, really interesting question. Um, and I think in some ways I have kind of resisted the impulse to to generalize in part because I mm. wanted to kind of preserve the like preserve the specialness of each story right and and the kind of you know you talk about how a single death can change the course of a like the whole course of a nation or a continent or or the world and I think it's also true at like the micro human level right a single a single death a single job loss can catalyze a whole cascade of changes um you're you're never the same you know you're never the same um after that so uh to kind of return to, to your question again I, like I said I've sort of resisted the temptation to generalize and I've also uh in many ways kind of resisted the temptation to approach this like as a researcher, um, yes. you know, people who have uh, like know anything about my intellectual biography, like this is a, this is a bit of a departure. I, it's, I don't, it's not a complete departure, but it's very different. You know, you talked about some of my main publications. I've always studied war and uh, militarized violence and visual culture, and this is something else. Um, and so, you know, when I started the archive, I was really thinking more as a, as like a, a human, like trying to make sense of this experience as opposed to like a scholar first and, uh, you know, sort of somehow managing to, to hit pause on my tendency to intellectualize everything. Uh, but, um, but, you know, I, I do want to kind of think about the question of theme, um, which you've posed. So I think that, um, you know, I would say definitely the question of time um, is a huge one. Um, the question, the, the um, question of sort of weighing connection to like the natural world um, and also the kind of like non-human world that's come up in a lot of the, um, the, the, the non-human natural world uh, has come up in a number of posts, um, people sort of reflecting on relationships. Um, that was obviously um, a huge part of it. Um, one of the things I think has been 
interesting to me is the sort of blurriness of the categories of lost and found. So the way that the archive has been, that I set it up, um, is that in order to submit something, there's very few rules, but one of the only like required fields is that you have to choose whether it's a lost or a found. And this is partially just so like the architecture of the site knows where to put it. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, it was also kind of by design to sort of think through this concept of, of losing and finding. Um, but one of the things that's been really kind of striking to me as I read across the archive, um, which is less about the, the, not so much the, um, the content of the actual, like thematic content of the actual post, but the general, um, sort of commingling of lost and found. Like I was kind of thinking of these categories as really separate. Um, but even the, the, you know, the losts are, um, you know, people often sort of talk about losing, some people have talked about losing things that they were happy to lose. Right. Um, and founds, um, even the sort of happy, the, the sort of, happier things, right? Maybe they would have been impossible without the the backdrop of this tragedy, right? Like whether it's the elasticity of time or these kind of new connections with the people we love, like may not have happened in the absence of this calamity. So there's this kind of like infusion of lost, uh, of infusion of lost into finding, right? And infusion of um, the finding into, um, into the losing as well. There's something really important in that, and and I like you noting that you, you the architecture of the site you force people into kind of a binary <laughs> choice. You got to say, is it a lost or a found? But actually, you read and pay more attention to the text. You find, I think, like many of us, I mean, there's absolutes here. You you don't want to die. You don't want to get long COVID. You don't want people that you love to die, and and also in the abstract, you don't want others to die. But the the overall experience. When you hear people talking about it, I mean, earlier this week, I talked with a couple of um, journalists, uh, Michelle Weldon and Marianne Renault, about vaccination experience um, in April for many Americans. And Marianne wrote this amazing article. They both did. Michelle did as well about um, vaccination road trips or about getting vaccinated in large groups at old like J.C. Penney's or places they hadn't <laughs> been to. And, you know, here's something you didn't think you wanted to do. But it had opened up a form of sociability that they had lost. And so, again, it's like, well, was this lost or found? I don't, I don't know. And forcing someone to, someone to take a stand on it, but then realizing the stand wasn't as, as permanent or as clear as they thought was, was interesting and important. So I see that also mm-hmm. um, in your archive here. And I just want to note, I, I just made a note of what you said here. When I started the archive, I did it more as a human. Uh, that's a good note. <laughs> To all of us researchers, <laughs> I think to allow ourselves also to kind of grapple with just also being human and suffering through this as well, instead of intellectualizing or turning everything into a study. That's a nice note to make. <laughs> just want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Rebecca Edelman today about the coronavirus lost and found archive. But I'd like to ask you now, you mentioned some of your earlier work, and I do like to ask scholars about this how you see the themes from your earlier work through the pandemic. And it's not to ask you to summarize everything you've ever written, but I'm sure there are continuities. I know there are continuities and themes that have continued to capture your fascination. How do you see those now refracted back through this experience of the last 15 months? 
Well, I think, you know, as I said, I, you know, most of my kind of big publications uh, have, have been about militarized violence. And um, one of the things I've, I've kind of always been interested in, um, and particularly as a person who studies the media is, um, and, and questions of visual culture is uh, like patterns of visibility and invisibility. And so in my, in my regular work. Um, I like to think a lot about what, um, like what can and cannot, what can and cannot be made visible when we're representing experiences of war. And so that kind of concern uh, and, and a concern that in part, one of the things that is never fully made visible is suffering and, and certain kinds of suffering we have. Um, this goes back, I think, to your question about big numbers, right? Like we have pretty reliable visual strategies for documenting um, sort of con the conventional aspects of war, for example. Like we know what sort of battlefield heroics look like. We know what battlefield casualties look like. We know what, um, you know, you know, civilians look like, you know, we, we know what ruined landscapes look like. Um, but I think that there's always a risk of overshadowing the kinds of experiences that don't fit neatly into our sort of pre-existing understandings of like what war looks like. And so I've always been kind of interested in developing methodologies for uncovering that or, or making those visible or thinking about uh, what can and can't be seen and known. Um, and also to, to study uh, militarized violence and particularly to study the relationship between militarized violence and media um, is always to think about the role of feeling in public culture. So, um, and that's a, a theme that became like much more important in uh, my second book, Figuring Violence. Um, and so I think part of what I was trying to do here was to, to understand, to think about um, feeling in public culture uh, during this moment of crisis. Um, and so I think that is kind of the the most uh, obvious uh, point of connection between the other work that I've done um, and the 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 creation of the archive. But again, you know, like I said, I, I was um, I was really just responding as a as a human. I, I really I you know had I maybe if I had had more time, I would have like gone through some kind of IRB process. And but like maybe I wouldn't have. And I actually kind of glad I didn't um, because in some ways, like it it the lack of that apparatus um, mm -hmm. forces me to continue to engage the archive as a human, not as a researcher, not someone who's trying to like mine this for, um, you know, publications or any kind of professional advancement. Again, that work is really important, um, but that's just kind of not, that's just not been my, my approach with this. Just to come back to some of the themes you were talking about and the difficulty on um, the affect of suffering, the difficulty mm -hmm. of talking about um, trauma and loss. How do you see that playing out in the pandemic? It's very hard to generalize, but you know, mm -hmm. just things that you've been paying attention to or taking note of in terms of um, memory, uh, in terms of people publicly talking about trauma, or what aspects of the pandemic trauma that you've seen pushed down that may sort of somehow speak to your earlier work? That's a great question. Um, I, I think one of the things that I've been concerned about, um, and particularly in, in recent months, as, um, you know, as people are talking about, you know, the end of the pandemic or an after COVID life, which I think is actually accessible to very few of us, like if you look on a global scale, like very few of us are in the after, right? Um, the after right now. Um, but I but I'm thinking one of the things I've, I've been sort of concerned about 
um, and particularly as I think about like labor and, and that sort of thing, um, is the sort of normalization of crisis, right? And the fact that, um, you know, so many people have been able to, you know, manage everything that they're managing, um, that doesn't mean it's sustainable, right? And that doesn't mean that it, that, that is um, like a livable life necessarily. But I think that um, particularly institutions like workplaces are always, they're always greedy. Um, and, you know, the fact that people have been able to do this uh, often sort of has been, is being taken up as indication that, well, of course they can do this. They can continue to produce at the same level. Um, and so I think that kind of normalizes, that normalizes crisis and it um, makes it harder and harder to claim space in public culture or in any culture at all for the fact that like people are still suffering, that people are still grieving, that everybody's exhausted, um, that people are uncertain, people are scared, people are angry. Um, and so I think that kind of, I'm concerned about that sort of normalization of crisis. I'm concerned about um, the way that like uh, uh, this sort of rush uh, to return to normal may make um, grief, for example, start to seem uh, passe or outdated um, that like, oh, that was before and now now everything is fine and we just move on. Um, and I think that's a real I think that's a um, I think that's a real danger in a lot of ways, right, to sort of maybe miss an opportunity to learn some lessons from the pandemic. And it's also just a tremendous disservice um, to the the millions of people who um, have lost uh, in in one way or another. Just want to stay with this for a second because you may have seen some of the reporting. Some of it is kind of framed as news reporting, and some of it is opinion. And it's come from both the right and the left, interestingly, to say, well, there's this subset of the population. This comes back to our mask discussion. They're going to keep wearing the masks. They're going to keep focused on this. And almost to point it out as a pathology to say that there's this group in society that's not going to let this go. Um, it's often characterized as liberals, but I've, just, I've seen this criticism also come from um, maybe more left-leaning publications and say, yeah, there's going to be this sort of moment which some people are just not going to want to let this trauma go. They're going to hold on to it as, as if that's inhibiting recovery some, somehow. And I'm the person they're talking about. I mean, I get it. Um, but at the same time, so then you're kind of caught in a, in a little bit of a bind because you want to be able to say, yeah, these are positive indicators. I'm happy people are dying in, in the United States with less frequency of this disease. But let me also say in some communities, smaller losses matter have mattered a lot. And as you said, many people are living um, still with fear, with disease, with long COVID. And so I don't know how, how to get out of that. But I wonder what you make of that critique, maybe not even the substance of it, but the fact that it even exists, that people feel it necessary to call us out, or to call me out and say, why can't he let that go? I think that you know, one of the things that I, I, I've been thinking about a lot, and I think this kind of goes to the normalization of crisis, and this happened like almost immediately, like after the shutdown began, is, is what I've been thinking about is this kind of like toxic positivity. Um, and in some ways, it was it was kind of manifested. And it's it feels like, you know, there's there's all these kind of these periodizations of the pandemic and people talk about like early pandemic, like, oh, remember when everybody was watching 
Tiger King or whatever it was. Um, and that, you know, there's this kind of early pandemic moment when, as you said, people thought, oh, this is just going to be a glancing blow. And it was like, now it's time to optimize your life, like organize that closet, learn that foreign language, refine your yoga practice. And I think that was kind of like the first seeds of this sort of toxic positivity approach um, that, you know, this logic that like, oh, you know, there's all these silver linings or um, this kind of like uh, exhortation to resilience or, you know, you've survived this and now you're stronger. And and that that kind of language may or that sort of mindset may work for um, individuals. But I think when you scale it up to a culture, it becomes very, very dangerous. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the things I was really kind of conscious just to return very briefly to the archive, one of the things I was really trying to avoid was that like language of silver linings. Cause I think that does have a tendency. I mean, I think that does really minimize that again, that kind of backdrop of grief or that, that sort of like, um, really trying to avoid like that everything happens for a reason. So, or it could always be worse, uh, forms of dismissiveness. Like, yes, that is almost always true, right? Like it could always be worse, but that doesn't mean that you're not, um, you know, sort of suffering in the moment. And I think there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with like wanting to move on or wanting to, you know, kind of regain some sense of regain some sense of normalcy. But the, the, the problem with that is when it comes at the cost of kind of minimizing the loss or the suffering um, that preceded it, or the assumption that because I am like, because I'm okay, you must also like, you must also be okay. Right. Right. And there's an arbitrariness to that too, which is distressing. Some of it is uh, almost administrative. You know, when FEMA says the disaster is over, um, it's because they put a, a time, a date in which the payments stop. And so mm-hmm. from through some administrative practices, then people have to say, oh, well, I guess I guess the disaster is over. Maybe at a slower time scale, the memorial gets raised or the numbers get etched. And so there are these cultural practices and there's these governmental practices that declare a closure. But it seems like you want to leave some space to push back on those closures or to find uncertainty in those. I do. And and this is it's not in the spirit of like, you know, pressing on the bruise or, you know, wanting to to kind of wallow or anything like that. Um, it really is just the notion that um you know, my sense and it, and it became more acute as I was like reading more and more of these stories as, as they came in, um, is, is just a sense of like wanting to be like mindful and respectful of the suffering, most of which I will never know about, right. Most of which I cannot comprehend. Um, and so that like the rush to kind of move on, right. Or the rush to say it wasn't all that bad, um, is a, is a rewriting of history for, or maybe experienced as a rewriting of history mm-hmm. for many people. And one of the things that's happening in the U S right now is this, um, expiration of, um, like moratoria on evictions right. during COVID or the sense like, okay, the economy's doing better. So for some people, um, who are being evicted from their homes soon or now, right? Like the crisis is beginning, right? Or or it's getting worse, right? As everyone else is like taking off their masks and looking forward to Memorial Day, um, other people are, you know, like in it, in it on a different timescale, right? So you, I really appreciate your, um, you know, reminder about like administrative timescales or official timescales and like the rhetoric of that, like disaster, the disaster is over or now it's memorialized, so it's done. Um, but I don't, I, it just doesn't work the same uh, at the scale of individuals. You've stayed very busy throughout 
this time. Um, having said all of that, um, in your scholarship, and you published a piece recently titled Enduring COVID-19, Nevertheless, which appeared in Cultural Studies. And um, people should check out this this piece. It really grapples with a lot of the things we were just talking about. And some of it is also about language. Um, a lot of it's about language. And I wanted to just come back a second. Um, you talked about toxic positivity. And then there's this term out there, resilience. And I actually wanted to share with you, there was a tweet from historian um, Andy Horowitz. I don't know if you know Andy Horowitz's mm -hmm. work. He just published a book about Hurricane Katrina uh, last year. And he tweeted last night, I know Andy well. And I don't know if he was holding on to this for the right time or something, but um, he, the tweet says, resilience. This is like an Ambrose Bierce kind of moment. Resilience, individual solutions to structural problems. Yes. And I really thought that that captured something powerful also in terms of the pandemic and wanted to know what you thought about this, that it's on the one hand, it's praising something and saying this is something about humans. That's really good. And see, the pandemic showed it. We lean in to tough times. We summon our grit. We're resilient. But, you know, what Andy's suggesting is that um, framing it that way means you will put the emphasis on somehow the individual aspect of this to the exclusion of the broader structures that maybe kept you from dying or kept you living if you got sick. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, you know, there's, there's so much, uh, conversation about uh, so much conversation about resilience. And again, I think some people have found great comfort in the notion of themselves, you know, themselves as resilient or able to survive trials. And I like, in some ways I'm like one of those people, like I look back on some of the stuff I've been through and like, Hey, you, you did pretty good. <laughs> um, considering, but you know, I think that there's a difference between, you know, sort of recognizing the skills that an individual has to kind of navigate difficult situations and the imperative at the level of culture that we should be able to just kind of, uh, you know, withstand, like carry on with business as usual. Um, in the face of catastrophe. And, you know, a lot of the critique of, of resilience um, talks about the way that like resilience is what like capital wants, right? So now we're back to neoliberalism, right? That like, that, um, you know, businesses want to be resilient because they want to be able to keep making money, even as like the world is in flames, or um, they want their workers to be resilient so they can continue to, to do that. And one of the arguments I make in the um, in the article and the, the whole special issue is great uh, and worth reading. And I believe it's um, actually open access for this month and next. Um, but, you know, one of the things I talk about is that, um, you know, resilience doesn't necessarily like benefit the individual, right? Like the the dividends for being resilient tend to to flow upward to the structures mm -hmm. that are invested in businesses as usual. Um, and resilience is also a way of kind of normalizing suffering, right? And and um, kind of trying to, as opposed to saying, well, let's think about uh, ways we might prevent suffering in the first place uh, or, or minimize it. Resilience says like, oh, we can kind of commodify that or we can extract value from that. Um, and I think that is, that is, that is deeply problematic. And in, in the title of the article, Enduring COVID-19, Nevertheless, 
each one of these words deserves some scrutiny. Well, COVID-19 <laughs> will leave aside for a second, but talk a little bit about enduring as a choice. And yeah. then also I want to hear about the nevertheless part too, but let's start with endurance. I think it's, um, it's a word that I've found I'm using a lot more lately too. So in the article, um, you know, I was, I was kind of struggling to find um, uh, an alternative concept to resilience. Um, and so I think about um, the way, so I was trying to think about what, what, how else we might be able to explain what I call like the structure of our collective persistence, right? Because this connects to the nevertheless, right? That like, you know, we, people are exhausted. People are, are, were terrified. People are uncertain. They're overwhelmed. They're isolated. Right. And there's this kind of, and yet, right. They're still kind of continuing. Like, um, you know, I, I say in the, talk about the article, like the kid still needs to be educated. The dog still needs to be fed. The job still needs to get done. So like we keep doing that. Um, and so I wanted to kind of think about a way of kind of explaining that or framing that, um, that wasn't, that wasn't this kind of, again, extraction of value from suffering, um, in the form of, of resilience. And so the thing about resilience, right, is that you can only measure it after the fact, right? And it's also notable that the, the language of resilience actually comes from like engineering, right? And it's really just meant, it's, it's a way of describing like how well a material, like an object um, kind of withstands a, a shock. Um, so in and of itself, right, there's some kind of like violence in the notion, uh, violence and like objectification in the notion of resilience. And, um, you know, you can only measure it after the fact, right? Like you can only be like afterward, well, like you survived that. So therefore, like you get your like resilience badge. Um, but in the meantime, right, like the promise that someday someone will later call you resilient is sort of cold comfort. So like, what do we do? Like, what are we doing in the meantime? And for that, um, I turn to this notion of endurance um, as a way to kind of capture um, this kind of this continual acting, right? This continual moving forward, um, nevertheless, um, and without this kind of promise that things will get better, right? Because endurance mm -hmm. makes no such promises. And I kind of connect it to like, like endurance sports and like that kind of durational suffering um, as, as an alternative to, um, as an alternative to resilience um, and in, endurance as a way of kind of naming what we're doing um, in a moment and giving meaning to what we're doing in in a moment. I think, of, and it's maybe useful to think about the two, you know, in conversation with each other. Resilience is a term, as you said, it's been used in engineering, it's used in psychology, you know, an attempt to describe properties of systems that hold them together under stress. <laughs> And there's some value in that, I think. It's it's the cultural appropriation of that, which has actually been relatively more recent in the last 20 years, to apply it, um, it into military. So, I mean, I think this ties back to your earlier work to, to begin mm -hmm. to describe, even in the so-called war on terror, resilience sort of popped in as a concept that the U.S. Yeah. military started to use, the Department of Homeland Security started to use. And so it it moved itself out of earlier discourses around ecosystems, around living right. systems, right? and then suddenly became applicable to Fortune 500 companies and the U.S. Marines and the combat zone and these various other things. And so that universalizing it 
made it, I think, very, um, it, it seemed to both at the same time make it objective, but also to me, very um, militaristic, very hard. And it lost that sort of organic feeling to it. Endurance to me, um, I, you know, you th I think of a living system, I think of a runner, actually, or you think of a mm -hmm. person, but it doesn't just have to be humans, but it does. Um, I think it, re it to me, it puts, put, it puts the humanity back into concepts that people are trying to develop to show how people go forward in the middle of stress. Yeah, I mean, and I, um, in the in the article, I talk about um, kind of one of the the people who sort of who I, I had a kind of passing interaction with a with a trail runner um, that was kind of inspired my thinking in part about um, in part about um, endur endurance. And so um, near the end of the article, I talk about um, I say if you would uh, permit me just to read a little bit, um, I sure. say I say resilience thrives on crisis. Uh, but endurance survives boredom. Resilience suggests that we capitalize on our grief. Endurance allows us to carry it rather than attempting to exchange it for something else. Resilience denies damage and minimizes loss. By contrast, endurance acknowledges that things hurt now, makes no guarantee that things will hurt less in a minute or tomorrow or next week, and is totally open to the possibility that things might actually hurt more later, but nevertheless. Um, and so whereas resilience kind of promises, like if you just suffer better now, right, like your, your reward is coming. And of course, that reward is endlessly deferred, right? And there's probably going to be like all these crises in the meantime. Um, but endurance and people who like train like I do for fun to be more endurant is like there's no there's no promise that things are getting better, right? Like things may like you're, you may feel worse in a mile than you do right now. Um, but I want to kind of think about the capacity to to kind of be in that, um, yeah. as, as a research, like as a human, um, it's like a valuable human thing, right. Or a way of kind of making meaning of the work that we've been, we've been doing for the last 15 months that like, it's, it's not, it's extraordinary. Like the fact that like, if you're sitting here now listening to this, like you have done an extraordinary thing. And I think endurance like is a way of naming that. Just to, to kind of wrap this this part of the discussion up, but I think it's I hope it's a useful one for the my many colleagues who are work in resilience centers, um, <laughs> whose disaster research they are constantly grappling with resilience, and who are charged actually many of them now mm -hmm. by statute to work with resilience plans to try to take stock of various different quantifiable aspects of uh, an infrastructure system or a community or an economy and then report those. I mean, resilience has swept the field as a concept in the disaster preparedness space. And so many of the people who work in that space are of enormous good faith and will work very hard with whatever conceptual apparatus gets shoved down onto them by emergency management, um, you know, official dumb. They're going to work hard to try to achieve survivability for the greatest number of people. So I, I want to make sure I, I note that but at the same time, you can also see, um, you know, resilience, if it's imagined as something that can be mathematized, that can be um, turned into statistics, then it can become a sort of governmentality. You know, there's a way to sort of make it governmental and say, see, we achieved resilience. We, we did these five things and now your community is resilient. And are we glad about that? And you can see why policymakers will say, yeah, that's good. We made a positive change instead of imagine, you know, 
every resilience center that's out there, you made it an endurance center. And you said, we're going to find out you know, what we can do to allow this community to just get through this. And, and so the framing, even that sort of small framing would be an important one in terms of the way that if and I'm talking about the United States and the UK here, I think particularly the way that public officials talk about disaster, which is comes back, I think, to your concept of a toxic positivity. Yeah. And of course, like to be clear, um, you know, and I think you're, you're absolutely right that the discourse of resilience gets picked up in all these different fields. Um, and if and if it's if the resilience center like secures the funding to fortify people's houses so their whole lives don't wash away when sea levels rise, like sign me up for that resilience. Right. Yes, absolutely. At the same time, I think we also would like to carry that example further. Right. We need to be thinking about like, OK, well, what can we do about the fact that sea levels are rising? And like, not just always be saying like, well, we can continue to do things as we have been doing them. And like resilience is a way of kind of like buffering the consequences, right? And of course the consequences for normal, right? The consequences for standard operating procedure tend to roll downhill. Um, And so my concern is with the way that like, you know, resilience discourses are meant to kind of make that more, make that more palatable or sort of valorize that. Um, And so again, like I'm wanting to sort of name the human capacity that enables us to keep, that enables us to keep going with like no guarantee that things are, things are going to get better and, and like no wish to minimize the suffering as we're experiencing it. We're almost up on time. In fact, I've kept you too long, but I thought I'm, I might because of the depth of the work that you're that you're doing here. And I guess the last thing I just wanted to see if I could raise with you is is language itself. I mean, you're really attentive to language, and I think mm-hmm. even just the discussion we had previously about the lost and found archive shows that there are certain words and phrases coming out in this time in English in, in this case um, that. Um, are going to be really useful to make sense of how people have made sense of this, I guess. And also um, to see which metaphors people are reaching for. I've been distressed. It's no surprise to anybody who listens to COVID calls, the degree to which the militarization and the martial language gets used. I mean, President Biden continually goes on TV like FDR and declares war on the virus. And I get it. But I find it a little distressing when we have other words, you know, words like care, medicine, um, compassion, those words work too. Mm -hmm. They haven't tended to be the ones that people have gone towards. So I guess I wanted to ask you what you thought about language, but more particularly, like, how do we, how do we win the war? And like, no, I'm not going to say it that way, but how (laughs) do we, how do people who want to influence the use of, language in this time how do they engage in that how how can we begin to shift the discussion from away from resilience and towards endurance for example i mean in our own journals that we operate in yes but there must be other ways too I think that, I mean, I think the answer in part is like very slowly, right? Like very slowly and and like endurance, right? Just like one step at a time. Um, And like you, I would much prefer if we just like stop declaring war on things, right? Because it just doesn't work. Like it doesn't get rid of the thing you want, uh, you want it to get rid of. Um, And, you know, one of the, the sort of linguistic 
practices that I was really kind of troubled by, um, and this was maybe kind of earlier this year in the United States, is there was all this sort of messaging around like, do your part, get a vaccine. And this is at a time when like vaccines were not widely available, when like your access to a vaccine is still, you know, was conditioned largely by factors outside of your control. And we know now that there are like large numbers of people in the U.S. where vaccines are widely available theoretically, like widely available, um, who would like to be vaccinated, but can't because like they can't take time off work and they can't afford to take two days off if they get sick or, you know, so um, this language of like volition, I think is really problematic. I think we need to, again, this goes back to your, um, your friend's tweet about like, we need to be very careful about proposing individual solutions to structural problems um, or like overstating um, the capacity of one person to change everything, you know. Um, so, in, but in terms of how we um, affect that kind of uh, linguistic change, which is also like conceptual change, right? It's also a way of changing how things are thought. Um, I think like very incrementally, um, the the metaphors of war are so entrenched in this country, um, you know, and I guess, you know, it's like if you're a, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail or something like that, um, that it's really hard to think around that. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, there's a way to necessarily disabuse people of their preference for those metaphors because they're so tidy, right? They're so punchy. But I think if we start um, kind of speaking alternatively, right, and we start um, just kind of like modeling a different kind of language, I feel like that might be all we can do. If you have an answer, I would love to, as we're nearing the end, I'd be happy to turn the question back on you. Um, but I really think the best we can do is... Um, you know, to, to, to model it, to be really careful about our own language, um, in, in whatever circles that, that we travel in and hope that's how, hope that's how change happens. I wish I had a better answer. Um, but that's, that's, that's what I've come up with, I think, is just to be really, really thoughtful and really careful and to recognize, um, that especially now, um, you know, messages carry, like messages carry. Um, and so just to be really careful about what we're transmitting. No, I appreciate the discussion, and I, I really like I liked your answer to it, which is incremental <laughs> and and slow, but also following up with a question. You know, if somebody says um, we've got to win this, we've got to beat this virus like we won World War II, I think that you know, to me, that invites a discussion to say, well, why are you thinking of it as a war rather than the provision of healthcare? You know, and mm-hmm. and in in part, it's, of course, thinking back to times that people can reach to in which um, a lot of times it's a it's a great communitarian collective effort to deal with right. a big existential problem. Like, well, let's talk about it that way. Right. Um, and let's make medicine instead of nuclear weapons. And I think that's a really good point. You know, this notion like let's win it like we won World War Two or, or World War One. Well, like one of the things that's different about that moment than about this moment is that like those wars in the United States were accompanied by huge popular mobilizations. Right. And right. like a whole lot of um, kind of civic engagement like around this cause. Uh, we don't live in that like we don't live in that universe anymore, um, particularly because we can't even agree about whether or not this constitutes a crisis, right? And we can't agree about like which deaths are worthy of 
grieving. Um, but I love, you know, I love the idea that you had about like, let's like reframing what what might have won those wars, in addition to sort of military technology is like this sense of a kind of common, a common purpose around and I'm idealizing, of course, but like, um, compared to what we have now, we're like, a very small pop portion of our population actually fights the wars. And for most of us, it's just, you know, news, if it's anything at all. Um, I, I really like the idea of kind of reframing, uh, reframing what that means. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be talking to STS scholar Philip Bostall. We'll be talking about time and the pandemic, a theme uh, that's been running through a lot of the discussions this week. And I want to make sure that uh, acknowledge my guest and thank my guest, Rebecca Edelman, who's the creator of the Coronavirus Lost and Found Archive, which you can find at pandemicarchive.com. And the archive is still taking contributions. So please do check that out and make a contribution. And it doesn't have to be a long contribution to be a meaningful part of the archive. Rebecca, I've enjoyed the discussion enormously. I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing and for taking time to talk about it today. Oh, it's really been my pleasure. Thank you for the work that you're doing and for the um, the opportunity to join this really amazing, uh, long and amazing lineup of uh, COVID calls, uh, COVID calls guests. It's a, it's a wonderful project and I'm just delighted to have been included. Thank you for that. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 5.30 p.m.